In vitro fertilization is a hot topic, not only amongst Christians and pro-lifers, but amongst all those who are trying to navigate the difficult waters of infertility. Tune in for an incredible conversation about how to navigate these conversations with compassion and clarity. Hi folks, my name is Cam. I am the host of the Pro-Life Guys podcast, a show dedicated to equipping you with the tools that you need to have compassionate and compelling conversations about abortion so that together we can change minds, save lives, and transform our culture. Thanks for tuning in. I hope that you have had a great spring thus far. Um, Wherever you're at, maybe it's really warm, maybe it's really cold, wherever you are. Um, it has been an absolute wild ride over the last little bit for me and the team. We are in full-blown internship recruitment mode. If you haven't heard about our internships already, um, I'll drop a link in um, the show notes below to learn more about our internship and how you can get paid to do life-saving and mind-changing mind changing pro-life work um, over the summer with our team here at CCBR. Um, But that's not the focus of today's episode. Today, we are talking about in vitro fertilization, a topic that I understand is a very sensitive one for many people, um, many Christians, many pro-lifers who have sought to navigate challenges of fertility pursuing in vitro fertilization. And this one is obviously different. This one is different than the, the standard abortion conversation, because rather than um, a worldview that is seeking to decrease life. It's not seeking, uh, abortion is seeking to end the lives of preborn children. The goal, obviously, of in vitro fertilization is to create and, and embrace and love and cherish life. And yet, it's not that simple either ethically or practically, um, and, and there's some very good reasons behind that. And so I'm joined by a, a great friend of mine and former colleague, Stephanie Gray Connors. Um, you know her, you love her. Um, whether you're thankful or not, she's the one who brought me into this movement. Um, she was the, the touch point that I had way back in 2009 doing a debate on my campus at UVic, um, who got me into this big old mess in the first place. Um, I, I thank her heartily for drawing me into the pro-life movement and for all of her wisdom and mentorship and guidance um, that she has offered to me and so many others in the pro-life movement, in the global pro-life movement, but specifically in the Canadian pro-life movement. Stephanie Gray has authored, I believe, four books now, one on abortion, one on euthanasia, this one on in vitro fertilization, and I feel like I'm missing another one, maybe just three so far. She's got a fourth one coming out. Um, Spoiler alert, uh, we're not going to talk about it in depth today, but um, she does have more books coming out, so stay tuned for that. But without further ado, here's my conversation with Stephanie Gray Connors about in vitro fertilization. All right, Stephanie, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join the Pro-Life Guys podcast. How are you? I am great. And I would like to say, since I've been on this show before, I love drinking tea out of the mug you sent me. <laughs> I'm so glad that you said that. It, we've been going back and forth. I sent one up to Dr. Michael Wagner the other week. I, I just interviewed him for the show. It'll be coming out in a couple of weeks. And I love the mugs as well. So I'm glad that you appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate the cartoon version of me. Yeah, it's fun. And of you. <laughs> <laughs> good, good, good. Well, it's a joy to have you. got you. the beard right on you. That was, that was a good beard. <laughs> it, it was very charitable because it still has red hair as well. And, and rather than, <laughs> than the all the gray that has come in that, that my brother always loves to point out every time he sees me because he's two years older and has not a single gray hair on his head yet um it's not the years it's the mileage he does have children but he's never had interns so um... (laughs) yes you know what i think i have ccbr to blame for my for my gray hairs (laughs) 
Oh, too good. Too good. Um, well, Steph, today we're, we're talking about another book. So last time you were on, we talked a little bit about um, your first book that you had published, um, Love Unleashes Life. Today we're talking about the second, your, your third book, actually, but the second that, that relates very directly to the beginning of human life, um, the Conceived by Science, Understanding in Vitro Fertilization and Reproductive Technology. And uh, so I've read the book a couple times now. And while I was rereading it this most recent time, what I've put at the beginning of the book um, as my summary, if, if I had to summarize how I would describe the book, I would describe it as profoundly human. And what I mean by that is that this book and your other books and all the talks I've ever heard from you are such a beautiful synthesis of both the academic and incredibly well-founded arguments together with a very beautiful, very human, very relatable approach. And I know that you've got a, a ton of background in a bunch of different topics. You've written about abortion, euthanasia, IVF. I'm sure that you've given talks on an even wider array. And I, I'm curious, as a bit of a weird question to start off with, but when, when you um, kind of put your mind towards writing on a topic such as IVF, do you have kind of guiding principles as to what you want to convey in general, whether it's a presentation or a book that allows you to facilitate that very human approach, that it's not just an academic textbook per se that, that nullifies all of the quote unquote red herrings that are actually very real to many people who are struggling with these ethical questions, but also not entirely emotional. Do you have like a, a formula for how you're able to bring the two of those together so beautifully or does it just kind of happen? Uh, good question. I mean, I, in a sense, I mean, I always have an intention of speaking right out of the gate to the emotions someone might be feeling about a topic. So just as you'll recall, when I was at CCBR and training other speakers, when speaking about abortion, remember there's post-abortive people in the audience, you know, whether it's at the beginning of your talk or right before showing abortion victim photography, speak to the wounded heart that's about to see or hear what you're communicating and address what they're feeling. And so in that sense, I brought that same perspective to the topic of in vitro fertilization. Why would someone consider it? Why would someone pursue it? It's because they have a deep desire for a child and that desire isn't being fulfilled. And the desire they have is a good desire. And so it is a profound suffering to not be able to fulfill that. So I just had that sense that when writing about this or speaking about this, the, the, one of the first things I need to do is speak to that pain and and try to open the heart of the person whose mind I want to reach by addressing that and then going into the arguments. And, you know, I have to give credit to my uh, grade 10 English teacher, Miss Jackson. She was British and she had a lovely British accent when she taught us with this quite refined and beautiful. Um, but she was really good about structure and she taught us how to write a good essay. And she talked about having a thesis and three supporting points. And so when it came to tackling IVF, I thought, okay, I want to touch the heart at the beginning. I want to address the emotions people are feeling. And then I want to have structure. We should be concerned and here's why and kind of go point by point by point. 
Boom. Love it. And, and that comes across perfectly in this book I, and as a, a bit of a random thought. So the entire book, in my opinion, is, is fantastic. We're going to dive into a lot of the content. I don't know if you'd remember this off the top of your head. Chapter two, in my mind, is one of the most interesting and important chapters I, I can imagine. And, and I'll, I'll distill it down to this. I remember when you were first training me in how to have good conversations about abortion, we'd go through the, the Greg Kokel style common ground analogy question. And you were very, very um, focused and, and helping people like me who are very new to apologetics avoid but... So, uh -huh. so avoid doing the common ground and like, yeah, 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 we all get that this is a terrible, terrible thing, but here's this yeah. big principle. And I feel like chapter two was the most beautiful way of transitioning from that chapter one, identifying the fact this is something that not only do people grapple with, there are people who themselves were created through in vitro fertilization themselves. Their parents chose this and, and they are the creation through that who have, have gone down this path for their own fertility struggles, that kind of thing. This very, very um, eloquent connection with them. And then a very natural transition into chapters three, four and, and also into the, the academic, the very well-reasoned kind of arguments that chapter two, as much as some people might read it and be like, what was... The point, to put it um, simply, the point was connecting the two. And, and so as, a, as an observer, chapter two was an incredible way of processing this. But, but I, I'm getting away from why I actually had you come on the show, not so I could just gush about how good your book was, but rather let's dive into some of the arguments and some of the background, the foundations that we need to get into regarding in vitro fertilization and fertility challenges. And maybe if you wouldn't mind opening it up for, for audience members, might be fairly new to this conversation. Maybe if you could speak a little bit towards the fertility challenge that faces so many in America and around the world, that why is this an issue that needs to be dealt with in a sensitive manner and not just attacked? I, I know that you've alluded to it already, but not just attacked in a, a hyper academic kind of way. What has your experience been through the presentations and workshops and people that you've interacted with as to why this question is so important for people to be thinking about here and now? Yeah, I think it's important for us to think about because it affects human beings and it affects human relationships and it causes harm uh, when we respond to infertility incorrectly or immorally it causes uh, further harm than just the distress of not being able to achieve a great good that one naturally desires. Um, of course, we'll unpack what, what that harm looks like. Um, but I think it's really important, you know, to, we'll, we'll get to chapter two in a second, but with chapter one is, is to acknowledge to anyone we're speaking with that this is a profound suffering some people face. You know, there's an estimate that there are a million embryos in freezers in America alone. Um, for just the million to be frozen, multiple millions would have been created and some would have been inserted and failed to implant or did implant, but were never born. A whole swath never would have been implanted. They would have been experimented on or just abandoned. So we're talking about millions of human beings, um, being created this way, which therefore means millions of human beings have pursued this and have attempted this. And, we may be talking to people who have attempted it and failed. We also may be talking to people who have attempted it and succeeded and they've succeeded as the parents. So therefore, if you call into question the morality of what they've done, 
there is the instinctive reaction of, oh my gosh, you're calling into question the existence of the child I love. How dare you? If, if you? if you claim that this is wrong, then you're claiming my child shouldn't exist. So there's a sensitivity we need to have towards that person. The other angle is for the audience member at this point, um, Louise Brown, I believe that was her name, was the, the girl in the UK who was conceived. She was the first test tube baby. I believe it was 1978, wasn't it? Yes. I should know. Yeah, late 70s, I, I know. <laughs> I don't know the exact yeah. year, but I know that it was late 70s, yeah. Yeah, I was born in 1980. I'm 42. So we're talking about now four decades of people that may have been conceived as a result mm -hmm. of technology that was successful in the late 70s, you know, and, and so forth, and then on into the 80s, 90s, and, and the present day. So we're now in a situation where the uh, very people we're speaking with, people listening to this interview, people uh, in audiences, uh, people in our churches and our families may have been conceived this way. And so if we question the method with which we were conceived, then those people may take personal offense to their their existence. And again, we, we need to talk about that and we, we can unpack that. Um, but it's, it's really important that we be sensitive to that as we are on the topic of abortion as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I, I think it's a great way to put it. And, and to dive right into that, I think that there, there's two analogies that, that I, I think that we can weave through the entire show that, that I think that you do a, an excellent job. One speaks to the way that we as humans come into the world through whether I'll let you um, describe the, the different examples um, by way of analogy to talk to that moment of creation. Um, and then the other one that we'll dive into, I'm sure as well, is is the analogy between the natural desire for marriage um, and on from there. But, but maybe... Yes. Dive and right that's into chapter that. two, right? You're that, that is chapter two. Yeah, I that, know. When, that, when you were like, chapter two is the best book, best chapter, I was like, what was chapter two again? And then as you were talking, I'm like, I think it's the, the men in China who desire wives analogy, yeah. but we'll get to that. <laughs> we'll get to that, absolutely. But but maybe um, rather than me uh, butchering the analogy, dive into that, um, how we're not questioning the value of somebody's life now, but rather examining whether or not we should be, if, if we can... Um, equally value or, or seek to bring about more the ways that people are created. You did such a beautiful job of, of a variety of different ways that people come into existence. And while we don't evaluate their, their origin stories, as it were, we value them equally. How did you break that down? Yes. Yeah. So what I did was I began to think, okay, well, everyone who exists in this world right now came into existence, not necessarily under the same circumstances. So some people came into existence in a very loving encounter between their parents in a committed relationship, let's say of marriage. Um, other people came into existence through lust, through a one night stand, a hookup. Um, other people have come into existence through violence, such as rape. And then other people have come into existence through technology, like in vitro fertilization. Now, if we set aside for a moment the four ways someone could have come into existence, love, lust, violence, or technology, and we just look at four individuals who may have come into existence that way, all four individuals are equal. As a believer, I would say all four individuals are made in God's image. They are unrepeatable. They are irreplaceable. And our value is not based on how we came to be. Our value is based on who we are and who are we is images of God and we are willed by him and loved by him. But I think even if someone is not so sure about the ethics of IVF, I think we can all agree on the first three 
circumstances under which someone could come into existence, love, lust, and violence. Not all three are equal. If, if someone had to say, well, what's the ideal circumstance with which someone should come into existence? We'd all say love. And lust is bad, but it's not as bad as the violence of rape. So we can say, okay, the circumstances of love, lust, and violence are not all equal, but who comes into existence from those things? An unrepeatable, irreplaceable individual who's willed by God and bears his image, those three individuals are the same and equal. And so I use that to then say, if we look at that fourth category of coming into existence by technology, who comes into existence is still unrepeatable, irreplaceable, and individual willed by God who bears God's image. But just as we can say in the first three scenarios, not all are equal, then can't we also say the fourth scenario isn't necessarily equal to the first one, that there are problems with coming into existence via technology, just as there are problems, there are problems about coming into existence via um, lust. But the, the point is not to question the individual, it's to question the circumstances um, so that moving forward, as we make decisions, no one can go in the past and, you know, say, well, let's undo what happened in the past. So I think of my friend, I think, you know, of Ryan Bomberger, who's a, he was a great pro-life speaker. Um, and he was conceived as a result of rape. Uh, Ryan loves his life and has made a great gift of himself to the world through his family, through his pro-life speaking, um, and so on and so forth. And he believes he's valuable. I believe he's valuable. God says he's valuable. Um, but how he came into existence was terrible because he came into existence through rape. And that act should never have happened. So while Ryan can love his life, he doesn't love how he came to be. Um, but he has no power. And you and I have no power to go back in history and undo that terrible evil of rape that happened. We can't go back in the past. We can say rape should never happen in the future. We can do our best to stop someone who we know is about to go and commit such an egregious crime. Um, but we can still say, while well, the act of rape shouldn't have happened because we can't undo the past, we can at least say he who came about from that, Ryan Bomberger is an example, um, is a valuable individual. And so we can say the same thing about IVF. We can question the ethics of it without questioning the individual conceived from it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's so valuable to be able to kick the book off with that conversation because that opens the door for those who might have, like you said, a personal experience or story that, that dovetails with IVF, that this can be examined in, in a meaningful way without threat to the value of their life or anything like that, that, that this is a matter of laying out right from the get-go that, that you are profoundly valuable, uh, made in God's image and likeness, his workmanship, all that, regardless of the circumstances let's talk about whether or not we want more of this or less of this, which is why I'm so glad that you included that middle, not middle option, I suppose, because we don't really want any of them to be options per se, but, but that it, it, it's not even so much comparing IVF with sexual assault, but even IVF compare as it compares to the one night stand that some people might be able to look at that very rationally and say, okay, well, do we want more children? Like everyone would be able to agree that we don't want more children conceived through sexual assault. However, there might not be that negative connotation towards um, a one night stand where that child is um, very often thrust into a single parent family and all of the challenges that come about from that. Do we want more children um, being brought into the world with that idea, with that, that um, outset? 
whether we want more children being brought into the world with that is a very different question than whether or not we value the children who are brought into the world with that. And so I think it's a great way to start off and frame the entire conversation. And then from there, I, I feel like it unfolds so beautifully towards the question of of whether or not this is an appropriate way to um, respond to infertility. And I think that there, there's something unique about this in that, uh, certainly in your other two books about euthanasia and, and abortion, it it feels like we are trying to prevent a very natural evil sort of thing, the, the natural evil of killing innocent humans, where in, in this case, I feel like there are some people who might often stand shoulder to shoulder with us in those fights now being quote unquote across the aisle from us as we're trying to reason with regards to IVF because of, as you alluded to, the natural good of desiring children. They say, but that doesn't God want us to be fruitful and multiply? Doesn't God want us to have more and more children that we can raise up to honor and, and bring glory to him? Isn't it better to have more children than fewer children? And if if it's better to have more, then why not IVF? It allows us to have more. And you unpack this in a very, very beautiful way with the analogy that I alluded to earlier with regards to the natural desire of marriage, likening it to the natural desire of parenting. And I wonder, could you open that up for us as we start moving into this ethical um, conundrum, as it were, and how we break it open in a way that allows us to really engage with it academically? Yeah, thanks. You know, I really wanted to find a way of communicating to people how good the desire is and yet impart the principle that it doesn't follow a good desire gives us license to fulfill it just anyway. And the thought that came to my mind was having, um, I, I would say two things. Several years ago, I watched a number of documentaries about the gender imb uh, imbalance in China, that there's way more men, millions of more men than women because for decades, the country had a one child policy. And if you can only have one child in that culture, male children are preferred. And so there was a lot of female infanticide or female abortions. So that several decades later, you now have this massive imbalance of men and women. And you have men that desire marriage and marriage is a good desire, but they literally can't find wives. <laughs> there are whole communities where it just is like men living in neighborhoods and villages. Uh, there just are not women and certainly not enough women to kind of match up and partner up. And so I was really moved watching these various documentaries. You just see how um, hurting these men are and and the other um, reason why this to me was kind of an analogy I thought I could really unpack was my own experience. I had been single for many years. I didn't get married until I was 40 and I wanted to get married in my 20s. And so I have like more than a decade's worth of journals to Jesus begging him for a husband. And one of the things I wrestled with is my desire for marriage is good. You know, God said, it's not good for man to be alone. And I would often throw that to God in prayer. Like you said with Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. And you gave him Eve, you know, and, and I really wrestled with that with my own suffering. And I remember my spiritual directors that I would consult on this would say to me, you know, you don't have a right to a spouse. God may give you the gift of a spouse, but you don't have a right to another person. And you kind of have to work on that before it might even possibly happen that you get married. Of course, in, in my chance, in, in my circumstance, rather, I, I was blessed to get married ultimately, but at the age of 40. So through my own experience and through of, of having that good desire that was unfulfilled for many, many years, 
And through watching this documentary, I thought, well, maybe this will help the person who struggles with infertility to be able to see that the person who objects to IVF still acknowledges the desire for a child is good, like the desire for a spouse is good. But then I made the point that in China, some of the men who desire wives, which is a good desire, are trying to fulfill that desire in an unethical way. And they're getting involved in human trafficking and they're going either within China or to surrounding countries and basically enslaving women and buying them and forcing them into marriages, kidnapping them in some circumstances. Um, And so I make the point, we can all agree that although these men have a good desire for a spouse, the means of human trafficking to fulfill the desire is not ethical, even though the desire is good. And we can all agree with that. So then I use it as an analogy to say, okay, the desire for a child is similarly good. Now we have to ask ourselves, is the path of IVF unethical like the path of human trafficking? That doesn't mean I'm saying IVF is like human trafficking. It's an analogy to get us to say, is the means an immoral approach to fulfill a very good desire? And then the book unpacks that. Absolutely. And and from there, you break into arguably the, the way that I've kind of characterized is something of the, the, the ethical challenges with the, the pragmatic practice of IVF, and then also the ethical challenges with the theory of IVF, even in the quote unquote steel manned case, even if we el- eliminate many of the practical problems and ethical problems that go along with this, it's still an inappropriate way of addressing um, this this ethical question of fertility. And while I value the the steel man concept, I I think that often it it gets used, but the steel man doesn't actually exist in the real world. And and maybe this steel man could, but I, I think that it's profoundly valuable to actually talk about the practical problems with how IVF is actually done in America and around the world, in Canada, obviously as well because they're not accidental, right? This, this isn't a matter of, at, at times, I, I suppose, by way of analogy, I, I, at times in the abortion conversation, we'll talk about the horrors of the, the Kermit Gosnell clinics and whatnot and how that, that isn't actually fundamental to the abortion conversation. Abortion's not wrong because Kermit Gosnell run, ran absolutely heinous facilities per se. But I think that many of the 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 challenges that you present in the early chapters of the book are very important for people to consider because they are common practices with regards to how IVF is done. And so while we'll work towards the commodification of children, which I think in many ways is the the pure root of the the IVF question and, and ethical problem, could you outline for us some of the pragmatic practices that also contribute towards the ethical difficulties that surround the IVF question and solution to infertility? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of the things I wanted to do when, after presenting you know, the stories of people who have struggled with infertility and how real that cross is, and then making the point with the analogy about men in China to get us thinking, okay, the ends doesn't justify the means. When I began to present the case for why we should object to IVF, I wanted to start with what I thought was probably the most easy argument for a person of goodwill to embrace. And that is the reality that IVF in general, the way it's practiced directly and intentionally ends some lives in order to create other lives. If if you are working, um, necessarily working, but, but pursuing IVF, it's all about uh, success rates. 
And so you want to maximize success, especially because it's a very costly endeavor. And so if you're going to be putting forward tens of thousands of dollars to try to, quote unquote, make a baby, then you want to be successful. So if you just take one sperm and one egg, the odds of those two coming together in a lab successfully and then being inserted successfully and then implanting successfully and then gestating successfully uh, are, are low. And so how do you maximize the likelihood of success? You make a whole lot of babies. And so in general, when people pursue IVF, uh, multiple embryos are created, 5, 10, 15, even 20 embryos can be uh, brought into existence. But because a multiple pregnancy has higher risks with it, um, yes, twins can happen naturally, triplets can happen naturally. These are still high risk pregnancies. Um, ideally, for a healthy, normal pregnancy, you'd have one or two babies. And so the IVF industry involves creating, let's say, 15 embryos, but only implanting one or two. Well, what happens if you implant two? What happens to 13 other embryos? Well, then they may be graded. And if they have a low grade because they're not considered likely to successfully grow to term, they might be abandoned right away or experimented on and ultimately killed that way. Um, or they may be put in freezers, but they're not dead because if they were dead, they wouldn't be frozen. They're intentionally being frozen because if the parents don't succeed with the first implantation uh, or first insertion, then they'll go back. Uh, even if they do succeed, they might go back in a couple of years and say, well, let's ins insert a couple more embryos that we have in the freezer. And so then you have human beings who aren't allowed to grow up, but who also aren't dead and therefore aren't at eternal life. And they're kind of in this stasis. So there's a profound injustice that happens to the youngest of our kind. Uh, as a result of pursuing IVF. Yeah, absolutely. And you dive very thoroughly into many of those. And, and I've got so many <laughs> post-it notes about how this has been showcased, whether in books or in movies and whatnot. Uh, you, you touched on surrogacy and you touch on um, even, even organ donors. And and I, I know that there is a movie about the book, Never Let Me Go, um, but a, a very, very challenging story about these children who are, yeah, um, twins of embryos that have been um, implanted years earlier and are now being implanted to be organ donors to their older mm. siblings and how horrifying their, um, many of these opportunities become when, when you say, well, I, I have another child who is genetically identical or very similar, um, same biological parents, they'd be an ideal organ donor, that kind of thing. It's just horrifying how many conundrums come up from it. It's a little bit of the Pandora box um, kind of analogy there, I suppose. And yet, as I kind of alluded to, and I'd be curious on your take, if, if you would also see it being kind of the crux of the issue, as it were, at the end of the day, the idea of the commodification of children, just as through the, the analogy with marriage, the commodification of humans through that human trafficking, that we don't have a right to children necessarily. We don't have a right to, to a spouse. We don't have a right to many things, um, though they may be very good and very natural in our lives. Would, would you say that at the end of the day, the 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 greatest problem, I suppose, or the strongest argument against IVF would be that commodification of children, or or how do you see that fitting into the equation? Yeah, I think the the objectification of the human person treating 
an, a subject as though they're an object is one of the fundamental flaws and problems with IVF. I would say another even more fundamental one, and I kind of work my way in the book, which we'll probably talk about, is just the nature of how humans are meant to come into existence and what sexual union is meant to bring about and only through through sexual union. Um, but yeah, treating the human person as an object. If you think about objects, they're things that are manufactured, that are made with our hands, they're forced into existence, and uh, objects aren't perfect. And so if you, let's say, have a television factory and then a TV set is sold at a store and someone goes and buys it, and it's got a scratch on the screen or the, the image is not showing up as clearly as guaranteed in the description, what do you do? You return it. You expect your money back. You expect a refund or an exchange. That's what we do with objects. And that's totally okay to do with objects. If you look at how IVF is done and the very nature of the industry itself, it involves doing to and with the human person what we do to and with objects. So you're first of all forcing into existence, manufacturing an individual uh, the way we'd manufacture a television set. And uh, if that individual is deemed to be less than perfect, then in a sense, people expect a refund, their money back or a replacement. So the way this looks in the IVF industry is in some cases, the embryos before insertion are subjected to a bunch of genetic tests to see if they carry any types of disease or genetic anomalies that the parents and the industry might consider problematic. And those children are disregarded and destroyed because they're less than perfect. In other cases with IVF, it hasn't been discovered that a child that's inserted uh, has genetic problems, but as the pregnancy progresses successfully, uh, suddenly with routine ultrasounds and blood work that's done with a pregnancy, then they discover, oh my gosh, this child has Down syndrome. And some people who have spent a fortune on IVF, have desperately wanted a child, are now pregnant with a child, have aborted the very child they worked so hard to get because genetic testing uh, showed them that the baby has Down syndrome or some other problem and the baby wasn't quite right. Or a couple may pursue the use, use again here, treating a human like they're a, an object and not a subject, the use of surrogates, and then demand that when they find out through the surrogate carrying the pregnancy that there's problems with the baby, they want to force the surrogate to have an abortion because they don't want the child being brought to term. And I, I give a number of examples in the book of this happening. So I think this attitude of treating the human person in terms of how they're created, as well as what we do with them once they're created, if we model that off of how a television is created and what we do with a television once we have it, um, that's a problem. And that's what IVF does. Absolutely. And and one one consideration that I've, I've been expressing in some of the conversations I've been having with, with either students while doing outreach or, or after presentations, I coming out of COVID here, it, it's been fascinating and at times very saddening looking at, and, and I know this is obviously not a perfect analogy, but you look at the number of animal shelters that are now overwhelmed by the number of pets that were adopted during COVID for the, with, with kind of the object mentality of I want companionship, I want something that will help me navigate what is a challenging time. And then now that I no longer need them, they are somewhat disposed of and and put into an animal shelter and how uh, swamped many of the animal shelters is obviously it's not a perfect analogy. But I think that there is something to be said for 
what I, I hope that we can dive into now of that, the culmination of, of academic argument as it were, or the pinnacle that is how humans were created to enter into this world, how we were wired to be able to bring children into this world through the unitive and profoundly um, joining act of sexual union in, in the context of marriage and how anything outside of that is, is not only a tragedy, but, but arguably an injustice to the children that, that are, are robbed of that origin, I suppose. And, and so I, I don't know if you have any comment on, on whether or not that, that analogy holds any water at all, but I, I wonder if, if you could share into kind of, yeah, that, the, the highest degree that, that speaks into the dignity of the human person and the uh, robbing them of some aspect of that dignity by, by separating their creation, their origin from that, gift and and natural process of the Lord that the Lord has given us for how humans were um, naturally created to um, produce um, children and bring more offspring into this world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a few thoughts in terms of the, of the analogies you point out, I mean, no analogy is perfect, but I think what it gets us thinking about is there's kind of three categories of things. There's, there's true objects that are inanimate then there are other living things like animals. Um, and then there are another category of living, living things, human persons. And so each of those categories are different. They're not equal, but animals are, are more valuable than objects. We don't consider them as valuable as humans though. So we can look to some degree at an animal as in its usefulness. So it, a dog might be a companion for someone. It is an interesting point I never thought about, which is that people have so looked at animals, you know, for their usefulness that when the dog after COVID was no longer needed as a companion because people got their social lives back, you know, then instead of keeping the dog in, in, in incorporating into their new life, you know, they get, they get rid of it. I think to some degree that's not necessarily bad as long as the dog is transferred to another place of care or, you know, disposed of humanely. And there's a whole bunch of stuff about that. Um, but we can see that if someone is treating a human person the way someone treated a pet during COVID, we've got serious problems at this point um, because now we're talking about someone who is our equal. And that also can happen within the IVF industry. And, and I, I talk about that actually in my book. I cite an example of a friend of mine whose sister-in-law struggled with infertility and pursued IVF and had multiple rounds and, and it didn't succeed. And one of the things I talk about to really identify that humans are treated as objects with IVF is you get a, a grade like you would with an essay. Is this an A embryo, a B embryo, a C embryo in terms of quality and likelihood to successfully go to term and so forth. Um, and so eventually this girl conceived one child by IVF and made a comment like, well, I think, I think I say in the books, like she says it was like a C or a C minus embryo left. So they're not sure if they're going to go back to, for it. After this mother pursued IVF and had, had the one baby um, to term, they naturally got pregnant. And so what are the odds of them going back for this C graded embryo? They already weren't likely to go back after the first baby because A, they got their child, um, and B, the one left in the freezer wasn't wasn't looking so good. But now that they have a second child, it's like, oh, well, do we go back for that? Well, then that feels like 
the dog during COVID. It's like, you're useful to me. I'm not going to quite dispose of you. I'm going to put you in the freezer. Oh, it doesn't look like I need you anymore. You know, um, so so that that is a problematic problematic attitude. But then as, as we're, you know, you're talking about is there's the more fundamental question of how ought subjects come into existence. If we're different than objects, are we meant to come to be differently than objects? And, you know, from a, a Judeo-Christian perspective, and, and I certainly, you know, I think some non-sectarian arguments can be made to show the problems with IVF. At the end of the day, I think a sectarian argument can and should be made, and that, that's what I ultimately do in the book, though it can cross denominations from a Christian perspective. And one of the questions we need to ask is, how did God intend uh, creation made in his image to come to be? He made creation not made in his image, right? He made plants, he made the ocean, he made the light and so forth, uh, and the birds and, and, and on and on. But when he made humans, it wasn't just good, it was very good. And humans for God's image. That means humans who are beneath God uh, bear the image of something above them, God. And so God then says to these things who are beneath him, humans, be fruitful and multiply. And, and he gives us a power to actually create another being who has an image of someone who's higher than us, God. And so there should be a profound reverence towards how then this being, which has an image of something higher than them within it, comes to be. And so God did put parameters on that. Yes, he told us to be fruitful and multiply, but that wasn't grounds to tell college students to go have hookups. <laughs> when God said be fruitful and multiply, he meant for that to occur in the context of marriage. And marriage is to be between one man and one woman. There are lots of things, and I point out, point this out in my book, there are lots of things within our marriage that we can invite others into. We can invite others into the home we share with our spouse. We can invite others to share a meal that we're sharing with our spouse. We might even share our finances that we share with our spouse with other people, whether it's other family members or friends or even strangers. But there are some, there's one thing in particular that we do and share with our spouse that we're not supposed to do and share with anyone else. And that is sexual intimacy. But at the heart and at the height of sexual intimacy is the capacity for another human person who bears God's image, the image of the divine, to come into existence. We are not supposed to be inviting third parties into that moment. And although someone who pursues IVF might say, well, there's no sex happening when the child is created. So the, the scientist who's kind of invited into my marital relationship is not participating in the sexual union. Having said that, although that's true, the scientist is at their hands um, bringing into existence the person that God designed to come into existence through the sexual act. And now it's been contracted out. And so another soul then will trace their existence back, not to an act of love making between their parents, but to the, the skill and the precision of a stranger, not part of the covenant in a lab, putting the parts of the parents together, but, but their very existence isn't the fruit of the marital act. And I think that's where as Christians, we need to have grave concerns about IBF. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great way to think about it in in how broken this has, uh, how how profoundly this has broken up that that very, very um, 
simple in some ways, but complex in so many other ways process of, of this gift that God has given us that has been broken so dramatically to, to involve so many other moving pieces. I, I think that's a great way to put it. And for those, as we start drawing towards the end of the episode here, um, Stephanie, I, I, for those who are struggling with, in, um, with infertility challenges and whatnot, I mean, we, we talked about it off the top and how great of a cross this can be for so many people. I think that you draw the, the end of the book very well towards the close of we're not saying that we can't do anything any more than we're saying that somebody who might have a natural desire for a spouse can't do anything. As I was reading the the last few chapters of the book, I was thinking about how somebody um, who's having difficulty um, with their relationships and, and developing relationships to the point of marriage may very well receive counseling and and support and potentially even medical intervention if if they have bipolar disorder or something like that that may be impacting their ability to have a, a healthy relationship with those around them that there are interventions that are appropriate to help us grow in ways that may facilitate relationships the same thing i i think is fair to be said regarding infertility as well that, that obviously there isn't always a magic formula tragically there are some who may never have that natural desire of um, parenting be fulfilled and yet maybe speak a little bit towards um, the the hope that may be available to those who might listen to this episode or may talk to people who have listened to this episode and might become um, discouraged by the idea of, you know, to have not become pregnant yet. And without IVF, there's clearly nothing that can be done that might allow me to um, pour out my love and share God's love with uh, my own offspring. It, it's not that bleak per se, I, it, fair to say. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up. And that was something that I wanted to ultimately mention in the book, which I did, um, which is that there are alternatives to IVF that are ethical. Saying one approach isn't moral doesn't mean other approaches are closed to us. And so kind of the standard I, I present is that uh, we shouldn't replace the sexual act, that children should be the fruit of the very physical union of the husband and wife. But we certainly can aid the sexual act if, it's, uh, if the male or female body in some way um, is sick in a sense, is not functioning well. Jesus healed the sick all the time. People who were blind, he gave sight to. Peter's mother-in-law, you know, who was sick, he he healed from her sickness. And so um, if a woman, for example, is not releasing eggs, she's not ovulating, that's in a sense a sickness. Her body's not functioning the way it should. So it's totally ethical to take medicine, which exists, where she can release eggs so that when she engages in that private uh, sexual intimacy through the covenant of her marriage with her spouse, that it's more likely they're going to conceive because now she's ovulating. Um, if, if there's problems, you know, with the man's sperm count and, and there's ways that that can naturally be increased. Um, uh, even if at a functional level, you know, the, the man is not able to get an erection, so they can't even complete the sexual act. Well, then there's Viagra. That's totally ethical in a marital relationship um, because you're achieving the sexual act, or you're sorry, aiding the a sexual act in achieving its, its ultimate, ultimate end. Um, so one of the things I talk about in my book is restorative reproductive medicine. And this is where couples can go. And I give a number of examples and footnotes in my book um, where they can identify if there are problems at a physiological level, how can these be corrected to increase the odds of sexual intimacy, ultimately achieving uh, pregnancy? I, I even give my, my own story. My, my first pregnancy was a miscarriage. 
And when I got pregnant the second time, we discovered through blood tests that I had dropping progesterone. And progesterone is a hormone that people can think of as being progestate. Uh, you need good, healthy progesterone levels to sustain and gestate a pregnancy. So the dropping levels, we were very concerned, man, I was about to miscarry my second child. And so um, I was put on progesterone supplements and successfully brought my baby Violet to term. Um, I then got pregnant two more times and very sadly miscarried those babies. And I, I was still being, you know, checked for progesterone. And as a result of those miscarriages, my, my doctor has done a number of blood tests to see if I had a clotting disorder or other things that were causing miscarriages to happen. We were going to do um, a very intense ultrasound of my uterus, which would identify the shape of it and whether there were fibroids and polyps. These are all things that are totally ethical for someone to do. And if there are problems, there's corrective surgeries. Um, in my case, we didn't, we weren't able to get that ultrasound done because I got pregnant. You can't be pregnant when you do the ultrasound. So we're just praying to God that this fifth child um, joins her sibling on earth. Um, ultimately, we want the child to join her three siblings or his three siblings in heaven. But I would like a long life with this child if possible. Um, my point is, if you can identify, is there a hormonal issue? Do we give hormones? Is there something blocking the fallopian tube or the uterus? Do we sur do surgery to remove that? That's corrective to something gone wrong in the human body. And it's good to restore, it's good to heal, it's good to correct. The problem with IVF is it's not restoring anything which has gone wrong. It's completely bypassing the human body and going to a third party, contracting them out to create and manufacture a human in a lab, as opposed to them being the fruit of the sexual love of the parents. Mm -hmm. Which I think is, is such an excellent way to put a bow on this, that, that there are so many tools by God's grace that, that have been developed, certainly over the last number of decades, I'm sure, that have um, been been cultivated to be able to address this, and, and which is excellent news, I'm sure, for many who are struggling with fertility challenges. And, and I will drop notes uh, in the description below for some of those footnotes that you had included in your book, Stephanie. Um, Thank you so much for walking through not only the the profound human component of this, the the challenges of people facing this, the, the academic components, the vulnerability of your own journey as well. Thank you so much for putting together a resource like this. Is there anything that I've missed on the, that I should be asking you about? Anything that, that you want to share more about this topic of IVF? And if not, what do you have coming down the tube that people can look forward to? Yeah, no, I just hope people dive deeper. So, you know, I hope I hope they get the book. I would flash it up on the screen here, but I'm waiting for my my author copies to arrive. You can flash it up your copy. I'm like, they still haven't arrived. Um, but uh, for people to dive deeper, and if someone is in that category of really struggling with infertility, to know that one of the points I make in that first chapter of sharing the stories of a number of people I interviewed who were willing to tell their stories was so that later in the book, I could reveal the outcomes of those stories. And some of those are really good positive stories where people successfully had pregnancies who otherwise weren't conceiving. Um, but as you alluded to, I also share, I think for me, one of my favorite parts of the book is the end where I share the story of a friend of mine um, who who never got pregnant and, and tried so hard um, to have a child and went through her own spiritual journey of realizing she had turned the desire for a child into an idol. And I unpack that in the book. Um, interviewing her moved me to tears. It's, I was so touched by her story in particular. And I wanted to include it because, as you've said, not everyone at the end of the day gets what they want. 
that's hard. And, and I realized I'm saying that as someone who wanted to be married and got married as someone who wanted to have a baby and, and had a baby. Um, but I've also lost three babies and I don't know if the one in my womb is going to stay. And that's something I wrestled with, with my husband, when we had the third miscarriage, I said, I can't do this again. I don't want to get pregnant again. That's a natural emotional reaction in the heat of the moment when you're grieving. Um, but as time went on, we got talking, we thought there is a risk if we get pregnant again, that we're going to keep losing our children. Um, but there's also a chance that we won't. And so what risk do we want to take? And so there is a chance if someone tries a whole bunch of things that they'll never get pregnant. Um, but what can we do with that? How do we live with that reality? And the story I include at the end uh, is someone who really turned her cross into the resurrection here on earth. And it's, it's, it's powerful. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely encourage. So we're gonna be doing a giveaway stuff of of five copies of your book to to our subscriber list, and and for anyone who doesn't want to book through that, um, we'll drop the link um, in the show notes below as to where you can purchase your own copy as well. Thank you so so much for for joining me, Stephanie, on the show. Thank you for your wisdom, um, for all of your mentorship that you've offered me and and so many others in the pro life movement. And I I will keep you, your family, um, your growing child, in my prayers and our family's prayers. Um, I invite all everyone in the audience to do so as well. And, and may God bless you abundantly in this coming year. Thank you so much. And, and likewise, God bless you. All right, folks. As always, Stephanie Gray with clarity, with charity, compassion, and truth blended together in such a beautiful way. Um, I'm, I'm thrilled to have Stephanie Gray, not only as a friend and mentor, but also as a leader in the global pro-life movement. The way that she brings truth and compassion um, in such a beautiful weave together is absolutely incredible. If you haven't checked out her other books, um, please do so lovingly. She was life, um, abortion and the art of communicating truth and start with what 10 principles for thinking about assisted suicide. Um, and we have two signed copies as a giveaway, another giveaway this year. I think it was like what number four, uh, giveaways that we're doing, um, as part of the prod podcast. What do you got to do this time? As always, you got to be part of the mailing list. The contest details will be on our mailing list. Um, I usually send the email out um, with the contest instructions two days after the episode comes out. And so if you're listening to this on Tuesday, the day that we're posting it, um, you'll have up until end of day Wednesday probably to get onto our mailing list um, to get access to that um, contest for two signed copies of this book, Conceived by Science, Thinking Carefully and Compassionate about In Vitro Fertilization. Um, go to our website, ProLifeGuys.com, and, and sign up for the mailing list there. I think we've got just over 100 people on it right now, so your odds of winning a book are um, relatively good. You can win repeat books, and so if you've won already, don't feel like you're not allowed to enter again. Um, please do so. Check out um, that email for more information on that. I'll also drop in the show notes, not only where you can learn more about Stephanie and the incredible work that she's doing, but also um, a link to where you can purchase her uh, this book and her other books as well. So thanks a ton so much for being a part of the team. Um, and may God bless you abundantly wherever you're at, however many hours are left in your day.